You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. Rob Bell was at a um, conference a number of years ago and a number of people were quizzing him on his particular stand on the issue of Christians and homosexuality. And without really answering the question, he simply replied, you're not really qualified to ask that question or qualified to speak to that issue unless you have friends or family that are affected. Well, by Rob Bell's estimation, I guess tonight, I don't choose to be, but but I am qualified to speak to this. But it's actually not Rob's qualification that, that counts in all of this. It is the very fact that that we who are teachers of God's word come under its authority, we believe it's authorised by God, and we stand as a people who know that we will be judged and judged severely. We stand as a people who come under the caution of Jesus himself who said, really, you want to teach? I tell you what, if you teach and you cause these little ones to stumble, better that you go by a millstone, tie it around your neck and find some very, very deep water. And I think there's probably a rush on millstones in society today, or there, there could be, because I'm not sure that a lot of the teaching that surrounds this particular topic is very helpful. And I do believe we, we stand in a place where we ought to be fearful of the judgment of God. So I stand in that place tonight and it's my endeavour to be as faithful as I can to, to the scriptures. And what we want to do is have a look at this issue of homosexuality in the context of the whole Bible and in particular Genesis. Really what we want to do is understand what does Genesis say about sex and the image of God? and how it may guide us through the current debate on alternative forms of sexual relationships. Firstly, a word about the book of Genesis, because the book of Genesis, I think, has been largely misunderstood. It's been been taken as a book that, well, is is mostly used to, to argue one way or another for creation versus evolution, or at least intelligent design. But perhaps in all of those debates, we've missed a couple of things that are very important. Firstly, the grandeur of the book of Genesis. It really is an amazing book. Derek Kidner writes that no work that is known to us from the ancient Near East is remotely comparable in scope. With the book of Genesis, certain epics from Babylonia tell of creation, others a deluge, but when these come to an end, Genesis has barely begun. In other words, there are other ancient writings with similar stories, which I believe have probably derived from the book of Genesis, but nothing matches or equals Genesis, even remotely. It's a rather rather incredible book. And then not just its grandeur, but its uniqueness. Again, Derek Kidner writes, one of the impressive facts about the Old Testament and about Genesis within it is this forward thrust towards a consummation which is foretold yet in detail, unforeseeable, which fulfills it without destroying it. He goes on and he says, Genesis, in fact, is in various ways almost nearer the New Testament than the Old, as some of its topics are barely heard again until their implications can fully emerge in the Gospel. The institution, for instance, of marriage, the fall of man, the judgment of the flood, the imputed righteousness of a believer, the pilgrim status of God's people are all predominantly New Testament themes. 
And then finally, there is the symmetry by which some of the very scenes and figures of the earliest chapters reappear in the book of Revelation. The Bible is bracketed, if you like, by Genesis and Revelation. There are things that Genesis speaks about that we hear nothing about again until, guess what? The book of Revelation. We read about Babel or Babylon, about the ancient serpent, the deceiver of the whole world, come to their downfall. And we read about the redeemed. And though they are now veterans rather than untried innocents, they walk again in paradise by the river and by a tree of life. All of those themes are picked, picked up again from Genesis. So there's the grandeur of Genesis, there's the uniqueness of Genesis, and then there's the importance of Genesis. Again, Derek Kidner says chapters 1 to 11 describe two opposite progressions. Firstly, there's God's orderly creation that reaches its climax in man as a responsible and blessed being. And then there's the disintegration work of sin to its first great anticlimax in the corrupt world of the flood and its second in the folly of Babel. And then we have this character introduced at this point called Abraham or Abram. Landless and childless, he's made to learn that the great promise, the lodestar of his life, must be fulfilled divinely and miraculously or not at all. In other words, the Old Testament hardly ever mentions the word, but in Abraham we have a character who epitomizes faith. His is a life of faith. His is a a life in which he is believing and must believe in the divine and miraculous work of God. For nothing else will bring about the promises that he is being given. And this stands in the context and contrast of his, of his nephew's hard-hearted choices to live in the cities of the plain. And it stands out, Lot stands out as a contrast to the fruitful way of faith. So we are looking at the book of Genesis, and in particular the first few chapters. Genesis really, right here, chapters 1 and 2, represent God's plan A. This is plan A. You imagine the coach has come up with the football team with this masterful plan and this is what we're going ahead with. And plan A starts this way. First five words of Genesis in the English translation, in the beginning God created, tells us two very important things about God. Firstly, it tells us that God was in the beginning, that he pre-existed all things. In other words, he has absolute rule and dominion over everything because he pre-exists all things. God is the ruler, or as our P&G brothers would say, he the boss man. God pre-exists all things and he has total dominion and rule over all things. And then secondly, in the beginning, God created. We understand that God is not just the one who has total rule and dominion, but God also created all things. So this God that we've just been introduced to in five words rules over everything and he's very, very creative. And then we go into two creation accounts. Um, chapter 1 gives us, a, gives us a macro, big picture creation account. And that's the one that you're probably familiar with, which lists the, the various days, day one, two, three, four, five, and six, on the seventh he rested. And in day one, two, and three, we find that God is creating form, light and dark, sea and sky, and fertile earth. 
And then day four, five, and six is, is the fullness of that form. Into the light and dark, he brings lights of day and night. Into the sea and sky, he brings creatures of water and air. And into the fertile earth, there are creatures of the land. And so now the form is, is also filled. And that's, that's the big macro picture of creation. We notice a couple of things in this. Firstly, that light precedes the sun. So where does this light come from? We get a clue later on in New Testament when John opens up his book in chapter 1, verse 4. He talks about Jesus, the light of the world, that in him was life and that life was the light of men. In other words, God himself is light and the creativity of God at work in the earth provided light. There was light. So light precedes the sun and in Revelation 22.5 we find out that light outlasts the sun. There was no darkness anymore. There was no need for the sun because God himself was the light of his people. In verse 26 we read, and perhaps actually we're going to spend a little bit of time in this, so maybe if you have your Bibles with you you'd like to open up to, to Genesis chapter 1. And let me read to you verses 26, 27 and 28. There's a couple of things in here that are helpful to see. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We know that, we know that something important is happening here because we have a threefold declaration. On three occasions, God is talking about making mankind in the image of God. Now, all of creation in some way or another, sort of captures the image of God, but nothing quite like mankind. Let us make mankind in our image. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And then he created them male and female. It's specifically mentioned here. We have much, don't we, at the moment about gender debates. Are we one or are we the other or are we in between? And can you just decide? Well... Clearly in Genesis, the idea was that God created some male and he created some female. And it's interesting that, that the female was not a duplicate of the, of the male. They were opposite and they were complementary. And then this is, we, we also see that the image of God, remember we noted two things about God. He ruled over all things and he's creative. God is a ruler and he is creative. So God now makes mankind in his image. What two characteristics would we expect to see? Well, somehow we would expect to see that mankind has the capacity to rule, but obviously not over the creator. And we would expect to see that in some way mankind has the capacity to create, but of course not in a way that would overrule the creator once more. And we see those, those two very things here. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so mandated here and enabled 
is our capacity to reflect the image of God. God mandates and enables us to reflect his ability, God's ability, his creativity and his rule. Be creative just as I am creative and subdue and rule over the earth just as I rule over all things. Those two characteristics of God that we found in the first five words of Genesis are now carried over and become our mandate. We're supposed to rule and we're supposed to create. They're two things that are common to, to all mankind. And then in verse 28, just so we know not to brush over this very quickly, this is really important. In verse 28, we find that this mandate is blessed by God. It's the very first thing in all creation to be blessed. I know that as Aussies, we would probably um, get pretty excited about of all the natural wonders in the world, the Great Barrier Reef. And we might have kind of thought, the Great Barrier Reef, so much more than the Grand Canyon or the Swiss Alps. That would have had God's blessing. But the thing which really has his blessing, the very first thing in all creation to have his blessing, is you and I. We, created in the image of God, have the blessing of God upon us. And then secondly, we notice throughout our passage, God, as he creates, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. For every day that he creates something, he finishes that day by saying, oh, that's good. He is very, very pleased with his handiwork. He thinks it's good every time until he creates you and I. And on this occasion, he doesn't say, it's good. He looks, he looks at his creative work and he says, oh, now that, that is very good. That is very good. Did you know that God says that of you and I? He looks at you and he looks at I and he says, very good. Ooh, I like that. You are the pinnacle, as it were, of his creation. And he's very good at what he does. He loves you, he's created you, and he really, really likes his handiwork. He thinks you are very, very good. You might look at yourself and disagree, but who are you? to disagree with the handiwork of God. No, God says you and I are very good. Now, what does he mean by that? Good. He means it's right. He means it's, 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 it's moral. And when he says he made us male and female with the capacity to create and to rule, that forms what we might call the moral mandate of Genesis. The thing which God blesses and says, now, this is very good. I really like what I've done here. I've made them male and I've made them female and I've made them with the capacity, combined capacity, to create, just like I create. And I've made them with the combined capacity to, be, to partner together and to rule and have dominion. Yes, this is very good. He places a value on it. This is very good. This is right. It is proper. It is moral. And that's the moral mandate that we, that we extract from Genesis. It's a moral mandate for all humanity. Remember, this is plan A. This is God's plan A. The man and woman are to fulfill the purpose for which they were created. That is, to themselves create and rule just like their creator. This is very good. And nothing else in the world glorifies God like this. It is the most moral, good and right principle in the created order. It's important. It really is quite important. Now we come to a couple of interesting little sidelines. In verse 26, God says, let us. That's interesting. Let us. Up until this point of time, we've probably seen Father God at work 
And yet we know from the Gospel of John that as he speaks, the Word of God is actually creating. And we know that the Spirit hovers over the waters. So we see the Trinity here in Genesis. But what's, what was once inferred is now made explicit. And that is that, that God speaks of himself and says, let us. So we now know, or this reveals, that God actually experiences companionship. Now remember, he's making mankind in his own image. Everything that that is reflected in the character and the being of God is now to be reflected in the character and being of mankind. So if God has made us in his own image and if God knows how to experience companionship because he is Trinitarian, guess what? Mankind is made for companionship as well. Chapter 2 verse 18 tells us that not everything prior to the fall was good. There was one thing before the fall of mankind that was not good. This was what God observed. This is good, 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 very good, not good. What was not good? It was not good for man to be alone. It was not good that man did not experience companionship in the same way that God experienced continual companionship within himself. And so we understand that God designed man for companionship. Now chapter 2 adds a little bit of detail to this. Chapter 2 of Genesis is a little bit more intimate and a little bit more detailed. It's, it's like we had the macro version of the creation of the world as if we were out there in space somewhere or, or side by side with God, looking on as God creates things. Now all of a sudden we take a micro view. We, we're you know, sort of transplanted down onto earth in the Garden of Eden there, looking up and around at everything that God is doing. And we read in chapter 2, Verse 20, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the, play, the place with flesh. See, see the much more intimate detail in the creation version we have here. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he has taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Um, sexuality in Genesis was not a shameful thing. So often in society today, as Christians, I think we feel a little bit like we're on the back foot. All of a sudden, oh, don't mention the S word. It's shocking. <laughs> it's all right. God came up with sex. It's his idea. And it was a good idea. It was a good idea. I know um, in a lead up to this, I, I asked the question, what was God thinking when he created sexuality? It almost feels like putting a pair of snowshoes on a kangaroo and letting it loose in a minefield. There was, there was all manner of difficulty that was going to take place. Why did God do this? But no, no, it was a good idea. And it's okay. You're allowed to say the S word. Would you like to say it all together now? <laughs> Would you like it? You're a bit embarrassed, aren't you? Shall we all say it together? One, two, three, sex. Yes, there we go. Got that out. So anyway, this particular version... Yes. <laughs> so this particular version has the need for um, Adam. Every now and again, I think you're getting bored. We might do that again. It kind of woke you up, didn't it? You're all feeling naughty, aren't you? It's all right, I'll take confessions later. So the idea was that... that uh, Adam's lonely. We need to find a helper for him. So God puts him to, to say, and probably just to illustrate how lonely he really was, 
he kind of says, well, let's, let's kind of start naming animals and see kind of if there's any chemistry there. You know, firstly, uh, what about the giraffe? You know, and I mean, he was just messing with Adam. And Adam comes up with names for him, but at the end of it, he, he's named all of the animal population and there was no suitable helper for Adam. And then God says, that's right. I'm going to do something very special here. In the same intimate way that God, God breathed life into Adam, he now causes him to fall into a deep sleep and in the same intimate fashion takes a rib from Adam's side, seals up the side and forms the woman. A very, very intimate way to do it. Now, up to this point, remember Adam had been naming all of the animals and he was on a roll. I mean, show him an animal, he had a name. Show him another one, he had another name. You know, where, where did he come up with Ornithorhynchus? I don't know. But anyway, he had names for all of the animals and then finally, God displays the woman before him and he's speechless. He's just, whoa, man. Woman! 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 That's a woman. Gary Peterson, a good friend of mine, came up with that. But I, I believe he's possibly theologically correct. That, that all of a sudden Adam was speechless and then all of a sudden he says, Woman! <laughs> like your handiwork, God. And, and it's a suitable helper. And so we notice here that um, firstly... Uh, captured in this particular creation account is the purpose of God. In verse 4, there was no one to work the ground. In other words, it, God is anticipating man's involvement and stewardship in the earth. Um, secondly, we notice the intimate formation of man. He's God-breathed. That will come up again later as God breathes life in the closing chapters of the book of John into the disciples as the promise of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God who brings life. Where was the Spirit of God? We come to that in just a moment. There was the need for companionship to be resolved, verse 22. There was no helper. And again, a very intimate formation of the woman. Um, and, then, and then there's this, this lovely little proclamation in verse 24, which, which Jesus will later affirm. Verse, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. This was actually placed in the Bible for um, wedding celebrants. This verse in particular, this is what we get all of our homilies from. From this we get the, the little formula to leave, to cleave and to become one flesh, which is perfect for any homily at any wedding. Um, by leave, we're talking about an, an exclusivity, the exclusiveness of marriage, you to come away from the family and form your own. By cleave, we mean to come together with another one and that's where we get monogamy from. And the one flesh, this is where God made two out of one, that the two would actually become one. And as Adam's flesh is sealed, so is his created order. This is, this is God's, God's perfect um, little formula for, for marriage, the need to leave, cleave and become one flesh. Okay. So we have the creation of, of mankind here. Um, now we need to do a little bit of a, a study of man or anthropology here. Okay, let's, let's note. So we are made in God's image, but note, he's not a sexual being. Now this is very different to a lot of the other gods. God, the God of the Bible, is not a sexual being. God is spirit. And perhaps the most important anthropological insight into who you are, is that you are spiritual. You are spiritual. You are primarily spiritual. We are made as spiritual beings to reflect and serve a spiritual God. 
So why did God also make us as sexual beings? Well, he did that in order for us to be able to create. God created how? By his spoken word. God created by his word. His word has power, and though we are made in his image, we are not God. Our words can have a powerful influence, but they don't have power in the same way that God's words have power. We can't speak things into existence. God can create through his word and we cannot. So it is a God or so God ordained a creative process for us so that we can reflect his image, and that creative process was sex. Would you like to say that together? Sex. Some of you are lagging. In other words, here's an, interesting, here's an interesting flip on the way that you and I see ourselves. In other words, the Bible sees us as spiritual beings with a physical form and a sexual capacity, not as physical or sexual beings with a spiritual capacity. That's very important. Let me say that again. You and I are spiritual beings with a physical form and a sexual capacity. That is almost the exact reverse of what you have grown up to understand yourself being. A physical or a sexual being with a spiritual capacity. That is not who you are. Very important. Genesis has just elevated your status above all of the created order. What makes you different to a dog? The fact that you are a spiritual being having a bit of an earthly experience at the moment. That's what makes you different to a dog. A lot of people can't answer that question. Some would say, I think I'm more intelligent. At least the dog, but I don't think I'm more intelligent than the cat. I think the cat has it over me. A lot of us suspect that. But you can answer that question. You are a spiritual being. Okay, Jonathan Edwards, a great reformer. A few of us were at a conference about, about him some, some weeks ago. He says this, As there are two kinds of attributes in God, his moral attributes, which are summed up in his holiness, and his natural attributes of strength and knowledge, etc., so there is a twofold image of God in man. Man also has his moral or spiritual image, which is his holiness, and God's natural image consisting in man's reason and understanding, his natural ability and dominion over the creatures, which is the image of God's natural attributes. What is Jonathan Edwards saying? Sorry, that's a long quote. He's saying that when we're made in the image of God, we're made with moral, the moral attributes of God, his holiness, and we're made with the natural attributes of God, his abilities. Kyle Strobel, one of the presenters at the conference, made this quote. He said, The Spirit's presence... The Spirit's presence was infused into the soul of the creature, but this infusion was not a necessary feature of the creature's existence. With the Spirit, the soul was sanctified space, but with the entrance of sin, the soul was defiled. In this new spiritless condition, the natural principles reign, and after the fall, human creatures are now flesh alone without the Spirit reigning. What is Kyle Strobel saying there? Simply this. What makes us different, what makes us spiritual is the Spirit of God. 
And before the fall, at creation, we had the Spirit of God breathed into us. And the presence of the Spirit sanctified the soul. But it is not a necessary feature of our existence. In other words, you could take the Spirit of God away and we would still exist. Only now, our natural ability would reign over our moral attributes. The moral attributes of God, His holiness, used to reign over our abilities. And now, the natural abilities would reign over the other. Sin defiles the soul and the spirit evacuates. In our spiritless condition, the natural principles reign. And that's what happens in, in chapter 3, the fall. So turn, turn to chapter 3, let's read verse, verse 16 to, to 19. This is the fall of mankind. Because we might say, love plan A, what happened to it? Well, this is what happened. Of course, um, we know a little bit about the early parts of this story. There's fruit on the tree. Um, some think it's an apple. A lot of us are actually certain it's durian. Um, anyway, Eve tempts Adam to take it. Um, they do. They eat of it. It stinks. We suddenly realize that was a really bad thing to do. And, and that's the fall of mankind. We've disobeyed, disobeyed God. Uh, God is, is wandering in the, in, the, in the evening, in the cool of the evening, as he was prone to do. And, uh, and now, all of a sudden, Adam and Eve are hiding. Shame has entered the situation. God finds them. And he says, what have you done? What have you done? And then, in chapter 3, verse 16, here are the repercussions. Notice, to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. Your painful labor, you will give uh, birth, uh, through painful labor, you will give birth to children. And your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And so we, we see a couple of things from here. I'll, it goes 18 and 19, also talk about the ground producing thorns and thistles is going to be really hard to plough, lots of sweat, and it's just going to be hard work. It's why we all don't like gardening. But essentially, there's a couple of things to note here. Remember, God is, rules over all things and he's creative. Remember that? He made us in our image. What do we look like? Ha! We've been given rule and we've been given the capacity to, to create in, in the context of companionship. That's fantastic. But... Then there's the four. We disobey God. His spirit is removed from us. And now, this is what we're left with. That, that the capacity to be creative, childbearing, is now actually going to be very painful. So our creativity is impaired. Secondly, um, cursed is the ground because of you. Our dominion has been impaired. The ground used to, we not once ruled over the ground. Now the ground is going to defy us. And then this is really sad. In 16b, your desire, he says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The partnership between the two is also impaired now. That companionship, that beautiful, blissful companionship that we call marriage is now also impaired. All three are affected by the four. So what did this actually mean in terms of sexuality? Well, it basically meant that the leash was off. Big time. Dennis Prager says this, Societies that did not place boundaries around sexuality were stymied in their development. The subsequent dominance of the Western world can largely be attributed 
to the sexual revolution initiated by Judaism and later carried forward by Christianity. It is probably impossible for us who live thousands of years after Judaism began this process to perceive the extent to which undisciplined sex can dominate a man's life and the life of society. Sexuality was unleashed and at this point the world goes into a chaotic freefall. He goes on to say, among the consequences of the unchanneled sex drive is the sexualization of everything, including religion. Um, some, some years ago I was at a um, uh, MMM conference. We were in Siem Reap and we were at board meetings and on our day off we, we went to visit the ancient temple of Angkor Wat. And as we were walking around the temple grounds, um, you know, I remember our guide trying to diplomatically say, this, this big, big basin here, sort of U-shaped basin, this represents uh, like the female. And then referring to the, the large monolith inside, he said, and this big pillar here, this, this big pillar, this, is, uh, this, is a, this, this relates to the male. He says, this relates to the female, this relates to the male, and as the water runs over the two, the, the, the male symbol and the female symbol, eh, he's kind of all of a sudden getting a little bit you know, sheepish, it becomes holy water. And uh, in my very best Maxwell Smart impersonation voice, I was standing by and I said, oh, the old fertility rites. And then the second thing I said to myself was, I just said that louder than I thought, actually. <laughs> but you know, it's, um, we sexualize the gods. That's what happens in, in many of the ancient religions. Among the consequences of unchanneled sex drive is the sexualization of everything, including religion. The gods of virtually all civilizations engaged in sexual relations. Babylonia in the Near East, the god Ishtar seduced the, um, the man Gilgamesh. In Egypt, the god Osiris had sexual relations with his sister Isis. In Canaan, El had sex with Asherah. We know about the Asherah poles and the trouble they were for Israel. In Hinduism, Krishna was sexually active and had many wives. In Greek beliefs, uh, Zeus married Hera and chased women. Poseidon married... Um, Amphrotite and raped Tantalus. In Rome, the gods sexually pursued both men and women. Judaism may be said to have invented the notion of homosexuality. You probably weren't expecting that, were you? How is that so? Because in the ancient world, sexuality was not divided between heterosexuality and homosexuality. That division was the Bible's doing. Before the Bible... The world divided sexuality between penetrator, the active partner, and penetrated, the passive partner. I mean, perhaps the most thorough historical study of homosexuality ever written, Dr. David Greenberg, who has no particular religious inclination, he notes that other than the Jews, none of the archaic civilizations prohibited, prohibited homosexuality per se. Dennis Prager goes on to say, Judaism's sexual ideals, especially its opposition to homosexuality, rendered Jews different from the earliest times to the present. So what is he saying? In other words, he was saying, until the Jews stood up and said, homosexuality is wrong, nobody had thought that there was any problem with it. That's why, in one sense, it's their invention. They made it distinct. They said, that particular practice is not right. Why did they say that? Well, of course, 
because God had already said it. Homosexuality, uh, researcher Alfred Kinsey says, is phenomenally rare amongst Orthodox Jews. Why? Because it wasn't a part of plan A. Remember, we've just looked in Genesis, God's plan A, made in the image of God, we're to have dominion and we're to be creative, just like God. And after the fall, the two things that were impaired was our rulership and our creativity, plus our companionship. And then things go very, very wrong. So, was there a plan B? That's what Genesis asks. With plan A now in tatters, we're left wondering, is there actually a plan B? Well, Genesis goes on, of course, to, to try and track a little bit with, with humanity in an unleashed sexuality, and we have the... Um, it's, it's not just an unleashed sexuality that's a problem, it's, it's the fact that nobody now comes under the rule of God because nobody has the Spirit of God to rule that person. And later on, we will look for the Kingdom of God, which is the rule of the King, to come once more and reside within a person. That's later. But right now, who is ruling over a person and their desires? No one. The world is in chaos. Um, in fact, things got so bad that God had to flood the world and start again. got so bad again that he had to disperse the peoples of the world at the Tower of Babel. And the question is, can anything in creation merit God's declaration now of very good? Once upon a time, there was something that did merit God's blessing, his very good, his, his declaration of something which was beautiful and moral, something that captured his image. But what now? Can there ever be an untainted version of his image to be found in all the earth? Do we now have to say, well, <laughs> you used to be able to look at, look at a man and a woman and used to be able to say, there's the image of God, not anymore. And that's why we have the Great Barrier Reef. <laughs> but even there, it doesn't quite capture the image of God, does it? And so what can be done? Well, we have the Abrahamic Covenant in chapter 12. And that's the, that's the promise to Abraham that he's going to father a nation of people who will look like God. That's the idea. Well, how? How are you going to get a whole nation of people who are going to look, look like God, carry his image? How can that be? Because there will always be the problem of contamination. There will always be the problem that they will um, mix with other people outside of, of Israel and, and that's a constant threat. In the actual fact, one of the, one of the first references to homosexuality in Scripture, that's the context in which this comes up. Again, Derek Kidner uh, says, There is no future. The story makes plain in Sodom or Egypt or in Ishmael, as there is in the promised Canaan and Isaac. Such lessons persist in the remainder of the book as men accept or fight against the will of God. The only hope for the people of God is to align, them, align themselves now with the will of God, to, to be the people of God who look like God, to be the people of God who capture the image of God by reflecting his holiness. And so you have Abraham and you have Lot, and they, Lot goes down onto the plains. He, he likes the idea of the cities and the people and... And, and so forth, and he lives amongst them. But there's the problem of potential contamination. Three visitors come to meet Abraham and they tell him quite clearly, you know what, there's been this huge outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. The outcry against them is so great and their sin so grievous, we're going down to see if it is as we have been told. 
And so they go down into the city after Abraham pleads, oh, if you just find a few people, will you save the city? They go down to the city and they do not find a small number of righteous people. But Lot and his wife and his family are to be saved and so they exit the city. And here is a story of a call for holiness, that this people needed to be separate from the rest of the world. They needed to look different. That's the context of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the context in which, which God says, no, that, that is wrong. That is just wrong. There is an outcry against this. And then, of course, for God's people to look like God, they'll need some guidelines. And so under now Moses' leadership, God gives them the Ten Commandments. And he adds to that also, as we read in the book of Leviticus, um, a number of other um, Levitical laws regarding marriage in, in, in chapter 18. But the Ten Commandments in particular, they showed us how to have a reverence for God and his name and an intolerance for idolatry. Now this was a huge break from the other religions. The other religions basically were, were gods made in the image of men rather than men made in the image of God. Now the thing with idolatry is this, whether it's animate or inanimate, the thing about idolatry is that we always end up worshipping a fallen image of ourselves. Always happens. We might pick out a tree or a bird or a koala bear, but somehow it will always reflect the fallen image of mankind. Imagine that, an evil koala. That's what happens with idols, and that's why idolatry is wrong. And that's why the myth of Narcissus in Greek mythology is actually quite telling. That is what all idolatry ultimately looks like. In particular, to accompany the Ten Commandments, we have the Levitical laws regarding marriage, and there's all sorts of laws in there. You really shouldn't marry your mother or your father or anyone really except your wife, not your brother's wife, not your, and, and, and so on and so on and so on and so on. And, and then right towards the end in verses 22, it says, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. And do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That's a perversion. Now the word for detestable and the word for perversion make these two laws in particular stand out from the rest. There's a whole bunch of laws, as I say, about who you should marry and who you shouldn't marry. And then there's these two. One relating to homosexuality, and the the Hebrew is made up of two two words here, which later in the Greek will become the word asenakoites. But the the one abomination is to for a man to lie with a man, and the other is to for anyone to, to lie with an animal. And the word for abomination, tovah, is notable because it identifies behavior as contrary to the holy character of God. When the parallel term in Sumerian and Akkadian language is used, it's always used to designate a behavior that is despicable to the deity. So this word we have that says despicable, detestable, or perverted, this word is familiar. We have it in a couple of different languages, parallel meanings, and it's always to do with, with just... Um, a particular practice or behavior that is despicable to the deity. So it's important to note that that's how this was recorded in Leviticus. In terms of who you can marry and who you can't, you can't do that. You just can't do that. Though by and large Jewish culture did not succumb to the practice of homosexuality, it did struggle in all manner of heterosexual behaviors that failed to uphold the moral mandate. But why in particular are there so many laws about marriage? 
Because way back in Genesis, there was a moral mandate that God wanted his people to live up to. And their behaviour must always reflect that, even in the law code. But if we can't keep the law code, what hope is there? So what hope is there? How will the image of God be recovered again? So if that's the best plan, plan B, you know, is to give mankind the law and we can't uphold the law, is there a plan C? You know, what else is there? Okay, God does have another plan, (laughs) but it's not a plan C. Plan B is actually plan A, redemption. God's, God's ultimate plan B is actually to fulfill plan A again. He doesn't want to settle for a second best or a third best or a fourth best. Fourth best. God's plan B, so to speak, is actually back to plan A. He wants to redeem all things and make it look like plan A again. Romans 8.3 For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. In other words, the law could never be fulfilled. What was God going to do? He sent his one and only son. In other words, we kind of need a new beginning. Doesn't that make sense? That's God's plan B, is to go back to plan A. Okay, we had a beginning and it's kind of like a false start. His plan B is really plan A again, a new beginning. And so, so the Gospel of John opens in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, with this echo of Genesis in it. It's like another whole new beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Here is God in the person of Jesus Christ coming to earth and recreating again that which was created. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. In Jesus is life. And that's the light for all mankind. Notice with Jesus, um, in this, we, we understand it as the seven I am's. You're familiar with the seven I am's of John? I am the bread of life. I am the light. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. You know, the I am's. All of them ultimately have to do with life. Jesus is saying in each of those I am statements, I am life. In chapter 6, verses 33, he says, speaking, I am the bread. He says, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. When he talks about the light, he says, you shall never walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. When he says, I am the gate, he says, whoever enters through me will be saved. I have come that they may, verse 10, have life. The good shepherd gives us life by laying down his life. When he says, I am the resurrection and the life, he says, whoever believes in me will live. Again, Jesus gives life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the true vine. If someone remains in me and I remain in you, no branch can, I will remain in you. In other words, my life will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. All of the I am statements declare that Jesus is life. If Jesus resides in you, you have life. And so here is the new creation. Here here is God starting things again. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it in Matthew 5, 17 to 19. He was actually addressing the problem with 
with the Jews, which was the issue of divorce. Some people have said, but Jesus doesn't actually condemn homosexuality. Actually, that's, that's, that's incorrect. Every time Jesus mentions sexual immorality, that includes homosexuality. Because sexual immorality, remember, is, is anything that is not sexually moral. What is sexually moral? The moral mandate in Genesis. Anything that deviates from that is sexually immoral. Every time Jesus talks about sexual immorality, he is talking about homosexuality as well. It just so happened that his chief audience was the Jews. And for the Jews, this was not so much a problem because by and large, at least in this area, they were obeying God's commands. Now, they were getting it wrong in many other areas. Their heterosexuality was going all over the place. They were divorcing. And that's the thing, because that's Jesus' audience, that he picks up on. He speaks to the issue of divorce. But he also says, in speaking of the issue of divorce, he reaffirms the the moral mandate of Genesis. Um, In Matthew Chapter 5, verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made the male and female? And he said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he adds, So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. And therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus taught that um, further in that, in that same section, the unclean actions reveal an unclean heart and sexual activity that falls short of the Genesis mandate is included in this. Chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these things defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. There it is. Theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them in answer to, a, to another question. The Greek, Greek word here for sexual immorality is pornea. Um, it's, used quite, it's quite a general word for unlawful or, and immoral sexual intercourse and relationships, says William Barclay. Gordon Fee says in the Greek, the word simply meant literally prostitution. But the word had been picked up by Hellenistic Judaism and was always used pejoratively to cover all extramarital sexual sins and aberrations, including homosexuality. Um, in Jesus' time, homosexuality was rife. Uh, they, they said the Romans had conquered the Greeks, but the conquered had now conquered the conquerors by introducing their form of immorality. In other words, the Greeks had introduced the Romans to immorality. Later on, actually, as um, various sociologists and historians would study how was it that this little, this little cult of Christianity changed the world and transformed the world, it was their stand, their for the moral mandate that actually won more and more Romans over to become Christians. But at that particular time, homosexuality was rife. From the highest to the lowest society, it was riddled with homosexuality. This was a vice which Rome learned from Greece. Um, many, many of its leaders, Julius Caesar was notoriously the lover of King Nicomedes of Bithynia, the, the queen's rival, they called him. Um, Plato's Symposium ranks as one of the greatest works of literature, but its subject is love, not just love, a homosexual love. Um, Lucian, in one of his dialogues, relates, it were better not to need marriage, but to follow Plato and Socrates and to be content with the love of boys, pederasty. Uh, homosexual love was, was rife throughout all Greco-Roman society. And it's in this context that 
that Jesus speaks. Now he's addressing primarily a Jewish, a Jewish audience. But Paul will pick up on this as he takes the gospel from, from Jews to Gentiles. He will pick up on this and, and continue to uphold this moral mandate that we find in Genesis. And Jesus lastly, by the way, and interesting, this is something that he, that he tells the Pharisees, but lastly he warns against the misuse of scripture and prioritizing tradition. Now we have a new set of traditions that are rising up today. Which is to be the more important? What the Bible says or what our culture says is the tradition of the day. Well, Jesus said this, speaking about the way the Pharisees were twisting the law with regarding the importance of honouring your mother and father. Jesus quite simply uh, puts it this way, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. We ought not do that. How, how is it that somehow what is plain and clear in the Bible becomes muddied? I've used this illustration before. Hopefully it's helpful. The idea of the Bible is that it, it is a lens through which we're able to look through life and all of life's situations, all of, all of life's complexity. If we take Scripture as the lens and we look this way at life, then we get a clear view of things. But every now and again, a situation in your life or my life, a painful situation can force us to do the unthinkable. And that is to kind of say, I don't get it. Surely scripture is not you know, giving me a clear view on this particular issue. Surely that's not what scripture says. I just don't understand it. Look over here, this issue is so painful and so difficult. I, I reckon I should look at scripture through the lens of my situation, the crisis I'm currently going through. And if you imagine it as, as a telescope, with the lens here being scripture and, and your situation or your crisis here, if you all of a sudden go to this end and you look through it, what happens to the view? Things get very small, don't they? And very distant. And so will God. When we use scripture as the lens to look at life, things make sense. God is large and he's close and intimate. When we go around the other side and we start to look at life situations as the lens to understand and interpret the Bible, God gets very small and very, very distant. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't, don't nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition or your, your situation. We need to be compassion, compassionate. But note, compassion in this is not enough. It's not enough to be compassionate, that is to feel with or for someone. We must actually show godly compassion, which means to feel what God feels. Jesus came to redeem. And by redemption, redemptive theology is not just looking forward to a point where all that was broken in the past is now made new. It ultimately looks forward to a point where all that is broken is made new, just just as it was in the beginning, where the previous state is restored. That's what Jesus came to do. When he inaugurated, when he started or began a new beginning, it was just like it was before. Jesus brings gospel power to enable us to live like we were before. How does he do that? Well, speaking of this gospel power, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. What does Paul understand the gospel to be? Powerful. 
Like this thing can make you rock. The very least is going to make you live. That's what Paul understood the gospel to be. Powerful. It can transform people. It ultimately looks forward to a, to a point where the broken is restored. In verse 17 he says, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And this is the context. This is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Perhaps some of you have even memorized these verses. Yeah, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Do you know what they precede? Those verses precede the description of how depraved the world is. It goes on to say in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, it describes a whole multitude of sins, including, yes, homosexuality, um, where women um, exchanged um, um, natural relations for unnatural ones, and men did the same. Um, they um, exchanged natural relations for unnatural relations and started to sleep with, with other men. That's kind of, kind of clear. Some people tried to muddy that and kind of say the parallel is between lust and steady committed relationships, but the passage just doesn't lend itself to that. I don't know any reputable scholar who would go down that track. It's just, it's quite plain. Natural, unnatural relations, the depravity of mankind, and that's what verse 16 speaks to, the power of the gospel, to transform that which has gone wrong. Um, Paul goes on, when he's addressing the Corinthian believers who are struggling with similar issues and he, and he talks about in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he uses this, this word that's, that's not very common actually. He, he, he basically, a senecoites, it wasn't used in polite company. Basically it means um, um, male intercourse. And, uh, and he uses this, this word and, and kind of introduces it. And so a lot of people have said, what does he mean by that? Because it's not a common word. And it's not a common word because nobody used it in polite company. And then um, it was probably the meaning of the word was probably lost for some time until, until somebody was reviewing the Septuagint on one occasion and when they got to Leviticus and they got to the, the Levitical prohibition on homosexuality, they discovered that it was made up of two words and guess what? It was asena koites. It was the two words. So the Greek scholars uh, or Greek writers um, who actually wrote down the Septuagint 70 scholars in 70, 70 days, wrote down the Septuagint. When they translated Leviticus, they used this word, asenokoites. And that's where Paul picks up and the word from as well. And so he is essentially saying there's a prohibition there against homosexual behaviour as well. Um, hermeneutically, we were saying that if a law in the Old Testament is upheld in the New Testament, then yes, <laughs> we need to abide by it. Do we have to abide by all of the laws, you know, the... Um, the ones about, you know, just bizarre things and no, if it's not upheld in the New Testament, no. But hermeneutically speaking, if it is, as are all of the Ten Commandments by Christ himself, then yes, it's reinforced in the New Testament as well. And so Paul would seem to do that in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Same word is used in 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10 and in Jude 1, and, um, 1 7 it also refers back to Sodom and Gomorrah. So what is all of this telling us? What this is telling us is, is, is just this. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, right after that prohibition, Paul goes on to say, verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, 
whom you have received from God? You are not your own. In other words, he's saying, why is this behavior not fitting for you anymore? Because remember, (laughs) there was once upon a time a day where you were created in the image of God. You were created to rule and you were created to be creative, just like God. And you were able to do that because the Spirit of God himself was breathed into you and enabled you to be truly human, to be everything that you were made to be. That was lost. But now, look what Christ has done. He has come back and dwelling within you. He lives within you. You are, by his Spirit, you are a temple. This is a temple of the Holy Spirit, God dwelling within you. Therefore, you must live in the image of God, to, to capture once more the image of God that now resides within you. You've been bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Galatians 2.20, Paul puts it this way. You see, another way of thinking about this is don't think about your, yourself as you know, um, being, being somehow, um, I guess, um, realised because Christ has has kind of entered into you. You're not realized. You're dead. It's Christ who is realized within you. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. But Jesus Christ, he lives within me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's Jesus Christ living within you. That's why you're described as a temple of the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, picking up the where does Scripture end up in Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22 verses 14 says this, Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Here is picking up again on the Genesis theme. Verse 15, Outside of this are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. The last picture we have in Genesis is a picture of those in whom the Genesis mandate has once again been restored by the Spirit of God. The image of God has once again been restored because of Christ dwelling within. And Paul says, don't you know that's the new you? Don't you know that's the new reality? Therefore, Whatever doesn't match up to that moral mandate in Genesis, get rid of it. It's not befitting a child of the king, a child in whom the Spirit of God reigns. It just doesn't fit. That behavior is not proper now. You have the Spirit of God reigning within you. You have the potential and the capacity to live up to everything that you were supposed to be in Genesis. A spiritual being with a physical body and the capacity to act sexually. But to act sexually in a moral fashion, according to God's original plan. Amen. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.com.au.